Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Hollywood legend Olivia de Havilland took on the studio system in 1943 at the age of 27 in a landmark case that established the de Havilland Law. At the age of 102, de Havilland took on the genre of docudramas, suing FX for its portrayal of her in a miniseries. But she didn't fare so well this time. That case ended at the Supreme Court. There was never a rivalry like theirs. For over half a century, they hated each other, and we loved them for it. De Havilland was played by Catherine Zeta-Jones in the miniseries Feud, Betty and Joan, and she claimed it made her seem like a vulgar gossip and a hypocrite. Joining me is intellectual property attorney Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Nugent and Rosenman. Terry, explain De Havilland's legal claims in this lawsuit. So, June, she made three claims. She claimed that there was an invasion of privacy going on, taking certain of her uh, personal moments. She claimed that the docudrama portrayed her in a false light as a vulgar, sort of unpleasant person. And finally, she filed a claim under California statute protecting rights of publicity for celebrities, essentially saying um, that they were capitalizing on her celebrity appeal and her her name as a movie star. So the Supreme Court turned away her appeal on Monday without any comment. So that leaves in place the decision by the California courts. What did those courts decide? Why did they dismiss her lawsuit? Well, the trial court initially accepted the lawsuit and refused to grant a motion to dismiss that was filed by FX Network and the other defendants. But it went up on appeal rather quickly to an intermediate California appellate court, which reversed the lower court and threw out the lawsuit in its totality. Uh, fundamentally, the, the court said that the First Amendment protects these types of docudramas as long as they are in some way transformative. In other words, it can be based on the actual facts that took place historically, but if there's enough fictional elements added, then the First Amendment protection for expressive works comes into play and these sorts of lawsuits will be dismissed. A key issue in the appeals court panel in March was the use of an obscenity in the miniseries by de Havilland's character about her sister, actress Joan Fontaine. And de Havilland's lawyer argued that no record existed of de Havilland ever using that word, much less to identify her sister. So why was that ignored? Didn't that portray her in a, in a false light? Well, the defendants, FX Network and the other defendants, essentially admitted that, but they did produce 
an interview that had been recorded with uh, Ms. de Havilland in which she referred to her sister as a dragon lady. And what the court said is that in the minds of a reasonable viewer of the docudrama, the obscene term that was used and this phrase dragon lady would have the same effect. And so it really can't be regarded as in any way defamatory or insulting to put those words into Mr. Haviland's mouth. It's a close call. And maybe that should have gone to a jury to decide what a reasonable viewer of the docudrama would conclude. But that's what the court said. Really? Because dragon lady seems a far cry from, you know, yelling an obscenity about someone. And it goes to the core of the claim she was making, that she was being portrayed as a vulgar person who would use um, these sorts of curse words when she specifically did not use curse words. And so in that respect, it may be reaching a bit far by the court, but the court strongly felt that First Amendment protections were at issue here and that they had to provide such protection in order to allow docudramas to continue to be made. And remember... Movies, films, television are big business in California, and the California courts do tend to bend over backwards to protect that key industry. And Terry, address the actual malice issue in the case. So under California law, um, when you portray or allege to portray somebody in a false light, the California courts have said that's the equivalent of libeling them, and that therefore, in connection with a public figure or celebrity such as Olivia de Havilland, um, the plaintiff has to show that the defendant engaged in actual malice. In other words, that they knew what they were portraying would be defamatory and intended it to be um, defamatory and hurtful towards the, the, the public figure. And that's a very high standard that's been set by the United States Supreme Court in libel law and adopted into California law, which makes it very, very hard in these celebrity cases um, for them to obtain any relief on the grounds of some sort of false light lawsuit. So, Terry, how much do these decisions tell us about the liberty that producers and writers of docudramas can take when they're portraying living people? Well, it appears to allow very great liberties to be taken in these docudramas. Indeed, the court seems to encourage um, more fiction. It specifically says that if you are portraying these characters as too realistic, too close to the actual historical events, you may indeed be running afoul of these California statutory and common law rights, whereas if you introduce enough elements of fiction, you, quote, transform, close quote, the historical facts enough to obtain First Amendment protection. And there have been lawsuits over fictionalized dramas, for example, over the film Hurt Locker and Wolf of Wall Street. It seems to me, and I don't keep track of these as well as you do, but it seems as if the courts are usually on the side of the filmmakers rather than the people being portrayed. Uh, There's no question about that, June, and Hurt Locker is a good example. Uh, Here you have a a distinguished, decorated um, service member who fought in Iraq being portrayed in less than a positive light, and his lawsuit was not allowed to go forward, just as here, de Havilland, very famous, respected actress, not allowing her suit to go forward. The California courts seem to be bending over backwards to protect uh, the film industry. 
And we'll have to have you back, Terry, because we didn't get a chance to introduce the intellectual property milestone that we celebrated last week on January 1st when works published before 1923 by legendary writers, composers, painters, and filmmakers entered the public domain. So we'll have you back for that. Thanks so much, Terry. That's Terrence Ross. He is a partner at Kattenmuchen and Rosenman. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.